Good evening, everyone. Uh, tonight we're going to begin a series of talks on a very important and critical, vital, and central area of Jewish life that, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people think they know a lot about, uh, and there are a lot of myths, unfortunately, that have fallen into uh, common perception. And that is the idea of oral Torah. So uh, we're going to try to do this systematically. We're going to go from bottom up. First of all, we're going to establish what oral Torah is, what, is, what it's comprised of, um, the various uh, parts of the oral Torah that are not found in the written Torah. Uh, we're going to try to go through a little bit of the evidence to its existence, the logic behind its existence, the historical evidence of its truth. And then we're going to deep, you know, uh, dive into all the questions that people ask, like, why do we have an oral Torah? Just write it all down. Or once well, it was written, one, I'm sorry? Written down. Good question. Or why do we call oral Torah when it's written down or parts of it written down? Um, all these questions are, are questions a lot of people ask. Uh, additionally, like, uh, you know, why was it written down? How was it written down? What's the format behind it? Um, why have both? Why written in oral? Uh, how do we know that it's transmitted accurately? For example, people, a, lot of, a lot of people ask, uh, what about the bro- broken telephone game? How do we know that it is... Uh, that it is um, accurate, it was transmitted accurately, uh, and, uh, and the like. So these are a lot of questions that people ask, but I want to also go into the next stage and to um, ask the questions of rabbinic authority. Um, what is the role of the rabbis in ensuring the transmission on the oral Torah, of the oral Torah? Uh, what do we do with machlokas? Machlokas is when there is a disagreement in the oral Torah. Um, where does a disagreement come from? What are different kinds of disagreements? What does that say about the, transmi- the transmission? And of course, why are all these included in the corpus? Why do we have so much in our Talmud, in the Mishnah, of course, uh, about, mach- about machlokes um, when, it, you know, in a perfect world we shouldn't have, or maybe we should. And lastly, we're going to also dive into uh, Jewish literature, a primer on Jewish literature to ask just what are the basics of books that we have? And we're going to ask, we'll, we'll deal with questions at the end. I don't want to ask a question. Can I just say something? Go ahead. Well, if you read the Torah, you'll see that it doesn't tell you how to do anything. That's true. We'll get to all those things. So if you have any points to add, let's hold, hold, it, hold them to the end and see if, if it's not addressed. I, mean, I agree with you. I agree with you. I agree with you. Okay, let, let, let's start. So we, we already spoke about this a little bit last week, uh, that the oral Torah and Torah are not two disparate entities. A lot of people get this issue confused. What's the relation to the written and oral Torah? Uh, we spoke about last week that they are indeed two sides of the same coin. If you were to take the oral Torah and the written Torah, you realize that they're actually different formats of the same information. Uh, and you look in the Talmud, the Talmud says, oh, this law, where is the source of the written Torah? This verse, where is it uh, explicated, extrapolated in the oral Torah? Well, what, is, what does that mean? Obviously, the intent is, the thrust is, that the oral Torah and written Torah contain the same information. They both contain Torah. It's, the same information is included in both. The only difference is the format in which it was written. The oral Torah is in a language that we can understand what the laws are, what the sources of the laws, what, what the practical applications of the law, etc., etc. It's, it's all fleshed out. Whereas the written Torah, it's encoded, it's encrypted. If you took a look at the written Torah, you wouldn't really know, you would know maybe the broad strokes of Torah, but you wouldn't actually know the practical applications of it in every situation. 
Thus, the two essentially are one and the same. They both contain the same information. It's just the methodology in which they were written uh, are, are different. Now, go ahead. And you mentioned that, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Now, um, Perhaps we could say, just for clarity's sake, the oral Torah and written Torah are both called Torah because they both contain the Torah, which is the Almighty's instructions to the Jewish people to achieve to Olam, to become a great nation, what are the mitzvahs and requirements that we have, but that, that's Torah, and the difference is only the format. One was written, and one initially was oral, and later on was written. Nowadays, we have the written Torah and its pristine, unadulterated, uh, uncorrupted format. We have the same Torah that the Almighty gave Moshe um, throughout the course of the 40 years, and Moshe gave the Jewish people as he, was about, as he was about to die. And we also have the oral Torah, the same oral Torah that the Almighty gave Moshe at Sinai and the ensuing 40 years, with some addition. So this is the point that I spoke about a little bit last week. I hinted at it last week, and I want to get to it uh, in, a, a, um, in just a more uh, clear format. Because there are some parts of the oral Torah that are not included in the written Torah. What those are, we're going to go through them one by one. I'm not familiar with the concept or term oral Torah. Good. So this is exactly what we're going to address right now. I will be at the end of this class. Yes. Okay. Oral Torah means Torah, which is instructions of God, transmitted, given over, orally. Right? Unwritten. These were unwritten. Now, that includes laws, which is the laws of Torah. For example, the law to say Shema, or the law to wear tefillin, or the law to observe the Shabbat, or the law of... Uh, commercial, civil law, like what happens in a case where I lend you money and you say that you, never, you don't know who I am. Right? But uh, oral Torah is law, and the law is incorporated in 63 books that we have now as the Mishnah. So the Mishnah is the laws of the Torah that were initially given orally, but were ultimately written down, and we're going to ask why it was written down. So it's a book of laws. Right now, it comprises 63 books that cover every aspect of agricultural law, laws of Jewish holidays, laws of Jewish marriage and divorce, laws of oaths, laws of a nazir, um, laws of interpersonal laws, so property law, personal injury law, um, laws of idolatry, laws of sacrifices, laws of purity and impurity, Laws of character, of ethics. The book of Ethics of Our Fathers is a book of Jewish law vis-a-vis ethics. So this is the book of laws. That's part of oral Torah. Now, it's called oral Torah because initially it was oral. It was not written down. And then 1,500 years after Sinai, it was written down. So is that clear? It's called oral Torah not because it is still oral, rather because it was initially given in the oral format, right? it was just given person to person, teacher to student, father to son, one generation to the next generation. 1,500 years it was maintained in its oral format. Uh, in the year, about the year 200 of the Common Era, it was written down, the laws were written down. So that's one component 
of the oral Torah. Originally transmitted by... Moshe to Joshua, Moshe to Aaron, Moshe to Aaron's kids, uh, Moshe to the Jewish people, Aaron taught, Moshe, Aaron's sons taught, Joshua taught, the people themselves taught. They had, uh, they, it, was, it was taught orally. How it was totally, we'll get to in a second, in a little bit, how was it done throughout the generations. But it's information, it's the initial first component is laws. That, we, that was ultimately written down and canonized in the Mishnah. And then it's another element of the laws called Gemara or Talmud. And that is the explanation of the laws, understanding it. Um, what are the, all the details, all the minutia that surrounds the law? What are the every conceivable situation? Uh, what would happen uh, in this and this? What, you know, what if things were a little bit differently? Um, it also includes the sources, which means connecting it back to the written Torah. Various examples, exceptions, applications of the law. Uh, this, too, was part of the oral tradition. So Moshe gives the Jewish people... Right. Moshe is the prophet, he gets it from God. He gives it to Joshua, to Aaron, to Aaron's kids, to the Jewish people, to all the elders. He gives them, number one, the laws, which were later canonized in the Mishnah. Number two, everything else that goes along with those laws, which was later canonized in the Talmud, or the Gemara, those two words are interchangeable. And another element of the oral Torah is what we call halacha. Halacha is practical law. So we have the core the law itself, we have all the various elements surrounding that law, and then we have the halacha, practical application, like the law itself. What, what do you actually need to do? Which was later canonized various times. The Rambam tried to canonize it, or did a various canonization. The Tur, the Raj, the, it's still being canonized as we speak. I'm sorry? Cairo, that's right. that's right. He was one of the canonizers of halacha. And the last part of the oral Torah, which was never canonized, is what we call Torah Hanistar, which means the mystical parts of Torah. Uh, when people talk about Kabbalah, what does the word Kabbalah mean? It means acceptance. Do you know why it's called Kabbalah? It's called Kabbalah because the only way to study it is orally, from a teacher to a student. There were books that were written, Kabbalah books that were written, but true Kabbalah can only be learned, can only be studied orally. The people that go on their own, that go rogue to try to study Kabbalah by themselves, end up not understanding what they're studying. Okay? So these are the four components of the oral Torah. It includes the laws, which was later canonized in the Mishnah. It includes... The, all the elements of the laws, including how, to, how the laws connect back to, how the laws of the oral Torah connect back to the written Torah. And all the various uh, exceptions, all the conceivable situations of the applicability of the laws in, in, in various situations. That later was also written down about the year 500 in the form of the Talmud. We have halacha. Halacha is practical Jewish law, which until this day is still being canonized. It was done by the Rambam. The Rambam tried to canonize the halacha. His success uh, could be measured. Uh, he tried to make a mass book. It was very successful, but not as a mass book of Jewish law. Later on, the tour uh, and the rush. Earlier, previously, the uh, Rabbeinu Alfasi, the Rif. Um, and of course, Rabbi Joseph Cairo wrote the Book of Jewish Law, the Code of Jewish Law, which is a canonization of halacha. And lastly, we have 
what's known as Torah Tanistar, the hidden Torah, which is the parts of Torah that have not been canonized and written down in an authoritative text. So, if you want to study oral Torah that's still oral, you have to find someone who's going to teach you tradition, all the way back to Sinai, of the hidden mystical parts of Torah. That's the only way to study it. Okay? So that's what oral Torah is. Now, we mentioned last week and a few minutes ago that the oral Torah and written Torah are mirror images of each other. Okay? So, there's a caveat to that. While in most Torah laws, we find a direct parallel between the written and oral Torahs, that is to say, we can find, we can trace every oral Torah law back to the written Torah, and we can trace every written Torah statement into its oral format, there are some exceptions. There are four categories of oral Torah teachings that cannot be traced back to the written Torah. And what are those? Four categories, that's right. What are those four categories? That is, number one, Halach HaLemoshim Sinai, which is a law that comes from Moshe at Sinai, which means it was never written down in the oral Torah. It always, in the written Torah, I'm sorry. It's only in its oral format. How many laws is this? This is roughly 30 laws. The Rambam enumerates 30 laws, roughly, give or take, maybe 29, 20, it depends how you count them. It's around 30 laws in all of the myriads of laws that we have in Jewish life. Tens of thousands of laws, if you count them one by one, there's about 30 of them that cannot be traced back to the written Torah. Rather, they were given in its oral format from Moshe, transmitted until it was ultimately written down to the Mishnah and the Talmud. I'll give you an example. The example I gave last week uh, was the sizes, the minimum sizes of Jewish law. So, for example, we have to eat matzah on Passover. What's the minimum amount? Oh, my kazayas. Uh, kazayas, all those things. How much you have to drink? You made kiddush on Friday night? How much do you need to drink? Do you need to drink an entire bottle of grape juice or wine? A little sip is enough. All those laws are part of what's known as Halakha Moshe Sinai. It's oral Torah that cannot be traced back so, to the written Torah. So I thought that everything in the Mishnah and the Gemara could be traced back to the Torah. Right, so almost everything. That's right. There's around 30 laws. If you want a list, I can email me, I'll send you a list of those things. Um, email me and I'll send you those lists. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, the Ramam enumerates them in his introduction to Mishnah when he's trying to, you know, just position everything in the correct place, you know, where do these things all fit in with each other. So the Rambam gives us a list of around 30 things that are not found in the written Torah, but are part of the oral Torah dating back uh, to Moshe. Okay, so that's one thing that we find in the written Torah that's not in the oral, in the oral Torah that's not in the written Torah. And there are three others, and these three others are rabbinic law. Now, the Torah tells us that the rabbis of each generation are commanded to make a fence around the Torah. Okay, make a fence around the Torah. Now what does that mean? That means that they should take the Torah law and make additions to it. 
So, for example, one that we're very familiar with. The Torah tells us not to eat milk and meat together. Come along to the rabbis, and they say, we're going to make a fence around that law. Now, what does a fence do? A fence extends the boundaries. The boundaries are no longer where the law ends, but rather there's a fence, an additional fence around the law itself. You know, if you wanted to go to Area 51 in, in Nevada, wherever it is, uh, or, or New Mexico, right? So they don't want you going to the site itself. So you know what they do? Fences. They put a fence with a little buffer zone all the way around. Right? They give you, uh, I don't know, a mile away, they put another fence, right? Why would they do that? Exactly. They, they make a fence around it, around it to make sure you don't get to the thing itself. So it's an additional precaution. So the fence about not having milk and meat, it really only referred to mammals, but the fence around it is not to eat chicken with milk either. That's right. And another uh, fence is not only do you not mix them together, you don't mix the dishes. That's right. So there are the, the, those are examples of fences that the rabbis, the Sanhedrin of every generation, they determined what are the appropriate fences to ensure that the biblical law would not be transgressed. So another example, very common example, we have the laws of Mutsa. Mutsa. Mutsa, the laws on Shabbat, wherein we are not allowed to move an item that can only be used for a prohibited act on Shabbat. So you're holding a pen there, Ed, right? So taking the pen, lifting and moving it around on Shabbat would be prohibited under rabbinic law. Because... Uh, the, like I said, the rabbis are instructed, are mandated by the Torah to put a protective fence around the Torah itself. So, the Torah tells us we cannot write on Shabbat. Come along to the rabbis and they make a protective fence around that and will tell you, do not lift and play and twiddle with a pen because a pen is used for one purpose and that is a purpose that is prohibited by Torah law. Therefore, make a fence around that. Don't even touch and play around with a pen. You touch and play with a pen, you may come to actually use it on Shabbat. But the prohibition of lifting and moving a pen on Shabbat is a rabbinic law, which is included in the oral Torah, but it was not part of the written Torah because it's a later innovation. It's a slippery slope, that's right. Now, does that mean that any rabbi of any community, any point in history, has liberty to make any enactment that he wants? Can I come and say, okay, gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, I have a new fence around the Torah. I don't want people to not only write a pen, uh, use a pen on Shabbat, and not only touch a pen on Shabbat, I want people to lock them in a safe. Would I be allowed to do that? 2016 in Houston, Texas, would I be allowed to do that? Is that an acceptable... You can lock yours in the safe, but you can't tell... Can I make a mandatory for you? So so the round tells us that there's three ways in which this can become mandatory. Because if I tell you guys, I have a new law that's starting with this Shabbos, it's obligatory of all of you to lock all your pens on Shabbat in a safe, that would not have the validity. So what's the difference? That's a fence around the Torah, don't you think? That's an an additional fence. So why is the fence of lifting and moving the mutzah on Shabbat, why is that valid, whereas the fence of my new fence of locking in a safe is not valid. The answer is, number one, it can only be done by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a body of rabbis that Moshe 
established, that continued almost uninterrupted from the times of Moshe up to the 5th century of the Common Era. So the, I guess I don't know exactly the date, but I think it might have been the fourth, middle of 4th century. 4th, 5th century. It to exist after the fall of the 2nd no, that's actually not true. The Sanhedrin continued to Yavne, to Chanut, to Yavne, to Usha, to Shvaram. To all these, we know, we know, we know, yeah, those are cities. We know where it traveled to from place to place. Okay, so, no, not period, not period. That's one way it could be, it could be, it could be enacted. There's another way it could be enacted, and that is not the Sanhedrin. Rather, it was done, it was accepted by all of Israel. The Ram tells us that if there is a rabbinic edict that became so widespread and so universally accepted, so ubiquitous throughout Jewish life, that everyone does it, that too becomes mandatory for everyone to follow. So that's how it got to be that Turning on the electricity is the same as lighting a fire. No, 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 that's incorrect. That turning on electricity, turning on electricity actually is uh, the same as lighting a fire. That's 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 not a rabbinic edict. That's a, that's a, that's the rabbis applying the oral Torah principles to modern technology, and we'll get to that in a second. That that's entirely different. So driving a car in Shabbat, oh, the rabbis, it doesn't say anyone tell me can't drive a car in Shabbat. Well, but it does. You can't light a fire, and the only way to have a car drive is if you light a fire. There's some ignition, some combustion. Oh yeah, all of Israel was a euphemism for the entire nation. Uh, and additionally, another way that a edict may become obligatory is if we have a leader of a community. So this was more common um, in times past, but there used to be where there was either a rabbi of a town or a rabbi of a, of a city or of a region or a, uh, or a country wherein there he had absolute authority for everything that happened in his town. So the Talmud talks about the different rabbis in different communities. They had uh, total control, absolute say in the religious uh, laws that, uh, that were applied to that city. So if a rabbi of a town who has, who's the Mora de Asra, who's the master of the town or the city or the community, etc., they, too, their uh, edicts that they would enact are binding. So, so in modern times, if, if a rabbi of one of the major Hasidic movements decides in something, that would be. So that would be another example. That would, that would be the, maybe the only case in modern times where such a thing would be binding is in Hasidic community because there the, rab, the Rebbe has absolute authority, unquestioned authority. So that might be an example. But it was more typical in, in the Talmud's times, you would have a rabbi in a certain town. He was the rabbi. He was the last say in halacha. And thus, when he made an edict, it was final for all those people in that town. Now remember, if you live in the neighboring town, you follow your rabbi in a particular area. If he says, oh, we don't follow the edict over here, then you don't follow the edict over there. Uh, but if it becomes so widespread, so rife throughout the Jewish people, it becomes binding for everyone. And of course, the Sanhedrin is the final authority on rabbinic edicts. And therefore, if they make a rabbinic edict, that becomes mandatory, obligatory for the entire, for the entire nation. I don't know who you're referring to. Your brother mentions him. Ask him. I don't know. Um, now, 
rabbinic edicts would also would also appear in the in the oral Torah, even though they cannot obviously they cannot be sourced back to the written Torah because they happen later. Now, additionally, there are seven rabbinic mitzvahs. When we talk about rabbinic mitzvahs, usually we're talking about rabbinic edict, uh, either a gezeira or a takana. A, a new mitzvah that's rabbinic, there's only seven of them. This is uh, a list enumerated uh, by the Chinuch, who's one of the great enumerators of Torah, of all the mitzvahs. There's seven rabbinic mitzvahs. They are, number one, to read halal on special days, on Rosh Chodesh, on various holidays. Uh, to read the Megillus Esther, the book of Esther, on the holiday of Purim, that's a rabbinic mitzvah. To light Hanukkah candles, that's a rabbinic mitzvah. Who knows why lighting Hanukkah candles is a rabbinic mitzvah? Obviously. Why is lighting Hanukkah candles a rabbinic mitzvah? Because it didn't happen until, exactly, it happened later. Uh, to light Shabbat candles, that's a rabbinic mitzvah. To wash your hands before eating bread. To make pre-food blessings. You want to you drink some water, you want to eat a cookie. Uh, you make a blessing before that, the exact um, words of the blessing and the exact um, laws that apply to the blessing is rabbinic. Uh, and lastly, the laws of Erevin, very complex laws, the various different kinds of Erevs, all that is rabbinic. Uh, so this is another example of Torah, oral Torah, that would not be found in the written Torah. Is wearing a kippah rabbinic edict? Because it's not in the Torah. That, that might be an example of, a, uh, of something that was accepted by all of Israel. So that would be under the, uh, under the first, uh, it would be maybe uh, an, an innovation that was accepted by all of Israel. Um, but like I said, that's, there's no verse in the Torah that says you should wear a kippah, and it doesn't even appear in the Mishnah. Uh, it's based upon a story in the Talmud, so it does kind of appear in the Talmud, but the fact that it was accepted by all of Israel would make it mandatory. Okay, so it, it, it is mandatory even though it's, it's not... Yeah, well, I'm saying is yes, I would say, I would say it is because of this, of the, of, of this idea that when, an, that when a rabbinic law becomes so ubiquitous, so universal amongst the Jews, it becomes mandatory. Um, and lastly, is rabbinic regulations. So, for example, the Talmud tells us that Moshe established a rule that 30 days before Passover, the entire Jewish community would study the laws of Passover. So, in every community, till now, you have the rabbi, 30 days before Passover, right after Purim. He'll say, okay, we'll hang up a sign on, on, in the bulletin board of the synagogue that we're going to study the laws of Passover for the next 30 days. That's an example of a rabbinic regulation, a takana, that goes all the way back to Moses. But since then, we've had, for example, Hillel, Hillel, the great Nasi, leader of the Jewish people in the first century before the Common Era, he was the one who made a takana, a regulation of prusbol. What's a prusbol? What a funny word, huh? Prusbol is P-R-U-Z-B-U-L, I guess. How would you spell it in English? Prusbol is a, a legal loophole to avoid the abrogation of, and the abolishment of, law, of loans at the end of the Shemitah. The Torah makes it clear that if I lend another Jew money and they don't pay me back before the end of Shemitah, mm-hmm. so every seven years, 
Comes the end of Shemitah, the law, the loan gets abolished. So that's the problem. The problem is, is that there's a Torah mitzvah that says, when the end of Shemitah comes, and your neighbor asks you for a loan, and you know, you have the calendar right there, you're like, you know that I have you know, two weeks to collect it, or else it would go, you know, yeah. it, it gets abolished, gets annulled. Mm-hmm. The Torah says, you should not withhold lending your friend money. So what's the problem? This is, Torah this is, the, this is a verse in the Torah. Yeah. This is a verse in the Torah. So Hillel said, he noticed that people, like he said, were stopping to lend money at the end of the seventh year. So he developed a legal loophole, or he popularized a legal loophole that allows people to pass off their loans uh, to a proxy. It's almost like uh, these complicated derivatives where you sell batches of loans, right, to a third end, to another party, right? You get a letter in the mail, your mortgage is now being transferred to, from Wells Fargo to, I don't know, J.P. Morgan Chase, right? You get those letters. Yeah, but your contract doesn't change. So. Right, but it's the point is that the loan gets transferred. You now owe someone else the money. So what Hillel established is a prusbal, which is a formalized documentation where you transfer the loan that's owned to you to the court. Now, what does that help? That helps because the court's law, loans do not get annulled and abolished at the end of the Shemitah. Only personal individual loans. So by doing that, he created a workaround and that allowed people to still lend without any concern of losing the money at the end of the seventh year. So to this day, we had uh, uh, a couple of months ago, we had the end of the Shemitah year, and um, the day before Rosh Hashanah, in every Jewish shul in the world, everyone's signing prosbols. Now, why do you have prosbols? Because someone owes you money, you lent your brother money, you lent your cousin money, you lent someone money, who knows who you lent money to, you've got to make sure you cover your hiney by writing a prosbol. But that's an example, the Gemara tells us, the Mishnah actually in the Book of Gittin gives a whole list of takanot, of, of regulations that were established became part of the corpus of Jewish law, even though, like we said, it does not appear in the, in the written Torah. Another example, uh, Rabbi Yochanan Metzakai. Rabbi Yochanan Metzakai was the leader of the Jews, head of the Sanhedrin, at the, after the temple was destroyed. Second temple, that is. So, to answer your question, Ed, the Sanhedrin continued after the second temple was destroyed. And he made a whole bunch of takanot. A very famous one is that we take the lulav, we shake a lulav for all seven days of the holiday of, Sukr- of Sukkot. Why? Prior to that, they would only shake a lulav and an etrog and all the four species only on the first day. The only place they would shake it for seven days is in the temple. After the temple is destroyed, Rabbi Yochum and Zakkai made a new takana to take it, to shake the lulav and etrog for the entire seven days, wherever you are. So this is an example of, of oral Torah that is not in the written Torah, but with the exception of these four categories of oral Torah laws, and they are halachal moshmina sinai, laws that came straight away as oral, were never written down, or the three elements of rabbinic responsibilities, and that is rabbinic mitzvahs, rabbinic edicts, and rabbinic regulations, takanot. Besides for that, everything in the oral Torah can be traced back to its source or to its corollary, to its partner in the written Torah, and those two indeed um, are mirror images of each other, with the exception of these four 
a category. So now, I feel like, you know, th- this is like an introduction. This is what oral Torah is. Oral Torah is um, the information that the Almighty gave Moshe in the form of laws, in the form of understanding of the laws, in the form of practicality, practical application of the laws, and in the form of the uh, mystical parts of the Torah. The first three of those four were written down. So the laws were written down in the form of the Mishnah, about the year 200. The the other elements of the laws, and including how it traces back to the written Torah, were written down in the form of the Talmud around the year 500. Talmud was written twice different discussion. We'll get to why it was written twice. Uh, halacha was written, was codified in the form of the Ram, it was codified multiple times and is still being codified. Or I wouldn't say it's still being codified, but still being uh, extrapolated. Uh, and that was done first by the Rambam, when the Rambam wrote his 14 books called the Mishnah Torah, which is the restatement of Torah. He writes in his introduction that my purpose here is to extract all the practical laws out of all the Talmud and to organize it in a fashion that all you got to do is read it and you know what to do. Of course, that was his intention. Ultimately, he did the opposite. Instead of ending debate, he spawned more debate and more analysis than ever seen before. There's about 10,000 books written on that book that was written to end all books. Uh, but of course, it was done again. Like I said, Rabbi Joseph Cairo, like you mentioned, and uh, he was the one who wrote, wrote the authoritative book of Jewish halacha until it became not so authoritative because the Ramah, Rabbi Moshe Isler's, wrote a, compendi- a companion work, and then the various, uh, the next 150 years, we have many, many, many dozens of books written to elaborate and to continue the further development of this canon that is Jewish law. But, like we said, oral Torah is Torah written in an oral format or transmitted in oral format, ultimately written down, written down incrementally. Certain parts of it were never written down, like, the, like we said, the hidden parts of the Torah. And almost everything in the oral Torah can be traced back to the written Torah uh, with the exception of four categories that we enumerated. Go ahead. So now that you said that there are certain things that can't be traced back. Okay, for example, um, it says that we should dwell in Sukkot. Okay, but it doesn't say what a Sukkah is. This is the same thing you mentioned it's earlier. We'll get to that. that. Is that in the category of things that can or cannot? Yes, it is in the carry, category of things that can be traced can back. Can be traced. That's right. Like I said, th- that is a parallel. In the Talmud, the book of, Su- uh, uh, of Sukkah, contains all the laws and all the practical applications of it. But does it derive it from the written Torah? It's all mirrored back I mean, of the written Torah. It has to be in such and such a shape. That's right, that's right. That's right, that's right. And, that's right. and there's something in the written Torah that, that moves them in as to what the shape Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that's right, be. that's right, that's right, absolutely. Okay, so, so that's the oral Torah, that's what it is. Now, the questions still remain, like, okay, so we have a little bit of, a, of an outline of what it is, um, but... You haven't proved to us yet, Rabbi, that it's true. So what I'm going to do now is going to look through some various statements in the written Torah and try to ask ourselves the question, what is it uh, inferring? Uh, but additionally, we're going to ask the questions that, uh, that Anne enumerated pr- uh, prior. Uh, we're looking at, at some of the logical arguments that prove without uh, reasonable, beyond a reasonable doubt that the oral Torah indeed 
is true and is mandatory. Now, I'll, I'll, tell, you, I'll tell you why I'm doing this. Historically, we find many examples of splinters of the Jewish people, various side fringe groups that wanted to question the legitimacy, the accuracy, and the veracity of the, of the oral Torah. It's very hard to call into question the, the truth of the written Torah, because if you get rid of the written Torah and the oral Torah, you're left with no Torah at all. So uh, throughout history, we have many people, individuals, and many groups, not many, but some groups, that have tried to question the legitimacy of the oral Torah. For an example, uh, we know historically the famous group called the Sadducees, known in Hebrew as the Tzedokim. The Sadducees were a group who, um, their leader was a fellow by the name of Tzadok, so thus they took on his name, Tzadok, Tzedokim, the the people of Tzadok. Him and his fellow, uh, his comrade by the name of Baitus, they spawned two groups, the Tzedokim and the Baitusim, two groups that were very powerful for several hundred years, and they, their central tenet was that all we have is a written Torah and no oral Torah. Um, That's the group number one. So for, that was before the destruction of the Torah? That was before. They, they, this group pretty much ceased to exist after the destruction, no, before, after the second temple. So they, around the year 300 before the Common Era, up to about the year 70 of the Common Era, that's when they had their heyday and then they're gone. Um, uh, in the 7th, 8th, and really in the 9th century, of the Common Era, we have a group called the Karaites, or the Karaim. They're almost identical in theology and philosophy to the Tzedokim, to the Sadducees, because they follow the same path. They don't question the legitimacy of the written Torah, they just question the legitimacy of the oral Torah. And they too, in their heyday, were a very powerful group, and they too are almost gone. In fact, I think there's like a few thousand of them left. Um, And uh, they... I think there's still a shul in Los Angeles, a Karite shul, uh, but they're functionally uh, non-existent, obsolete. Uh, the reform movement, the reform movement in various stages, but one of its stages was to accept the written Torah as the Word of God and to question the oral Torah. Now, since, since then it has evolved and has changed. Now they, uh, I would say, the the, the you know, the, the reform movement is a little bit splintered. You have some people that, uh, I, I teach in reform schools, the people believe in oral Torah, written Torah, some people don't believe. Um, the rabbinate, some believe, some don't believe. It's not so clear. Um, I would say the conservative movement as well. The, the, you know, the, their question is not with so much, at, with, the, with the written Torah, even though some parts of written Torah are up for debate, uh, but mostly it's about uh, the oral Torah. So we see, we see themes throughout history wherein people questioned the legitimacy, accuracy, veracity of the oral Torah. Uh, of course, modern times, uh, I think there's been a movement to reunification of Judaism. I think it's very nice because whenever we splinter, we suffer. Every time in history there's been a major schism amongst the Jewish people, we have suffered tremendously as a result, um, and therefore even the terminology that we use, reform, conservative, orthodox, like, that's a very, very destructive terminology because they're essentially saying that we're not one nation, we're multiple nations, uh, and that's a mistake, I think, a terrible mistake. Um, but just for the sake of clarity, we see that this is an ongoing debate as to what is oral Torah, is it true, is it not? So I want to look here um, 
at some verses. There's other examples of this as well. Uh, very famous verse in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 12, verse 21. Uh, it says, it's talking initially about sacrifices and the various procedures of bringing a sacrifice. What happens if you bring a sacrifice? You have supper as well. It's nice. It's a nice little bonus. You bring a sacrifice, but you also get, you get a steak. Sacrifice and steak. You have a big party. That's right. But what if someone's really far from Israel and they also want a steak? What do they do then? Can they have kosher food that's not a sacrifice? That's the verse. So the verse tells us it's so, you'll, you'll be so distant from the land of Israel, from the temple, and you want to eat some meat. So what do you do? It says you should slaughter from your, from your big animals, from your um, livestock, from your sheep, from your small animals, as I instructed. Those words are the critical words. We know there are very complex laws about sacrifi- sacrificing, not sacrificing, slaughtering, shechting a, uh, an animal. Uh, very detailed laws. And how, where are those laws enumerated? As I instructed you. That's all we have. Now, if you scour the entire Torah from the first word of Genesis to the last word of Deuteronomy, you won't find anywhere any detail as to how to slaughter an animal in the kosher way that God instructed. So, if we accept as true the existence of the written Torah, by definition, we have to accept as true the existence of some other method of instruction that was not included in the original text. Because otherwise, the original text doesn't make any sense. That's an option we're not willing to accept. So by definition, if we accept the written Torah, the written Torah in this particular verse spells out very clearly there's another form of instruction that God gave us, God gave to Moses, and Moses gave to us, and that is, we have no account of where that is. Um, additionally, just a few other quick examples. Um, this is great. In, um, <laughs> you like it? Yeah. How do you like it? Um, in, the, in the middle of Exodus, there is a mitzvah to eradicate and obliterate and decimate the nation of Amalek. Of course, it's a very problematic mitzvah for us to try to understand. What does it mean, killing off Amalek? Either way, that's a mitzvah in the Torah. Um, And the verse reads as follows. This is, let's see where it is, in the end of Parshas B'Shalach. I don't know the exact exact place where it's found. Write this as a remembrance in a book and place in the ears of Joshua. Once again, we're told in that there's two ways these things are, 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 uh, are given over. It's written down in a book and it is told Moshe to place it in the ears uh, of Joshua. Additionally, once again, back to Deuteronomy, the verse itself testifies... And now write down this song and teach it to the Jewish people, place it in their mouths. Once again, we are told to write down the song, but besides for that, to transmit it orally. So this is some examples. There are other examples as well. In the written text itself, where it makes it clear that there's some other form of instruction. That being said, 
I think that logically, the only way to understand this idea of Torah is with an oral instruction as well. I'll give you an example. The Talmud tells, in the book of Shabbos, page 31, of a Gentile that came to convert. And he went to Shammai, and he told him, this is not the one that you think you, you think you know it, but you don't know it. He went to Shammai and says to him, how many Torahs do you have? He says, well, two Torahs, written Torah, oral Torah, oral Torah. So he says to him, the written Torah, that I believe, the oral Torah, I don't believe. Okay, so maybe you do. So, but, so most people are familiar with the other part. The guy says, I want to study Torah. I want to say all Torah on one leg. Yeah. It's, it's the next Gemara right after that. So he says to Shammai, convert me with the understanding that you're only going to teach me the written Torah and not the oral Torah. So Shammai is incredulous. And he starts screaming at the guy, get out of here. And he says, leave. Fine. He goes across town. He finds Hillel. And he says him the same thing. Right? So what does Hill do? Hill converts him. So first day, he says, okay, let's, let's, let's study. So he says, okay, well, he has to study. you got to learn Hebrew. So let's learn Hebrew. So he shows a picture of an aleph. This is what an aleph looks like. This is the sound that it makes. This is what a bet looks like. This is what sound that it makes. A gimel, etc. Dalit. He teaches them the letters of the alphabet. Enough for one day. Come back tomorrow. I'll teach you lesson number two. Tomorrow he comes and he says, the first letter of aleph base is Bet, and then is Aleph, and then Dal, and then Gimel. He flips around the order. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, what? Yesterday he told me the other way around. He says, you see? Right? right? You're relying on me to understand what letters, what letters are, what, what sounds they make. Once you rely on me on this, rely on me also on the oral Torah. And the guy accepted. But what does this mean? This means that without the oral Torah, without our parents teaching us something, we don't even know how to read. How do you read written Torah? How do you even start? How do we know that the word, that the, the pictures that appear, or the, the, the shapes that appear on the page spell Bereshit? How do you know that? Even the, the basic rudimentary building blocks of the written Torah, we have to rely on our parents and previous generations to teach us, you know, what they sound like, what their names are, you know, what sounds they make, um, how to pronounce them, what the order of the alphabet is. So certainly, once we're relying on them for that, we can rely on them for for everything else. But I I also think like this. This is to Anne's point that she said earlier. If you read the written Torah, and you're you're a good guy, you're you're sincere, you want to do everything right. So you say, I'm going to follow everything but I'm just going to read the book. You read the book, and you don't know what to do. Don't do work on Shabbos. What does work on Shabbos mean? You have no idea. What does work on Shabbos mean? It doesn't say give us almost none. It says don't make a fire. But then it says a whole bunch of other times don't do work. So is fire the only work that we have? What is included in work? And by the way, the Torah takes the law of desecration of Shabbos very, very seriously. You desecrate the Shabbat, you get executed. Who determines what is work? They just execute anyone? It's all arbitrary? Every, every court has its own rules? Every rabbi, every, every decision maker has its own rules to determine what is work and what's not work? There's no central law? It's just up to the people themselves to just make it up? So I, 
You know, in, in this town you get executed for doing that work, but the neighbor's guy says that's not work? It's insane to believe that. Um, murder, right? So what's murder? So that's a big question we have still today. Is abortion murder? A lot of people have a, a lot of different passionate opinions about that. The Torah says, don't do murder. If you, get, you do murder, you get executed. Well, what's murder? The Talmud has a whole bunch of questions. Give me an example of what the Talmud does. If I tie someone up, is that murder? What? You, you tie them up, they can't move. Not, Not murder, right? Yeah. What if I tie them up and they happen to be in, you know, in a, um, what are those places called where you drive through uh, a big zoo? A safari. You tie them up in a safari. And what happens? A hundred lion appears and consumes him. Is that murder? I don't know. This is a good question, right? Uh, what if uh, someone shoots an arrow at, at, at the victim, but the victim's holding a, a shield, and I come and I swipe away the shield? Who's the murderer? Am I the murderer? Is the other guy the murderer? What if the guy's shot... But there's a CVS there that has all the drugs to, 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 to heal them. But I go, and I close, I lock the door to CVS. Am I the murderer? Is the guy shot the murderer? But these are all good questions. A guy jumps into the water. You know? I pull away all the flotation devices. Am I the murderer? I shove him into the water. He could have gotten out. He didn't get out. Am I the murderer? These are a lot of good questions we have to know. And... The Talmud goes through each and every one of those things because that's what the oral Torah does. But if we just had the written Torah, we had no way of understanding it, then by definition we're accepting information that cannot at all be applied. We're tefillin. We're totafot. We're told four times the Torah, we're totafot. Between your eyes. What does totafot mean? What does it look like? How do I set it up? How do I make it? What shape is it? What color is it? You have no idea. Tefillin. Yeah, tefillin. 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 It, the, how do we know all those, that's exactly. How do we know that there's four compartments on the one of the head, and one compartment on the one of the? How do we know that? Yeah. Uh, uh, you sit in a circle. You somebody in the You sit in a circle for four days. What does it look like? How big is it? How small is it? How many walls does it have to have? All those questions are not answered. Um, you take. You should take for yourself a beautiful fruit, uh, a fruit of the beautiful tree, beautiful fruit tree. Yeah, it doesn't say what tree it is. Doesn't say what tree it is. Is that an apple? You shake an apple on, on, on Sukkot? Is that a lemon? That'd be a lot cheaper if it was. Ha, 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 you know, and, and what's remarkable about this is that there's ubiquity. There's not a single Jewish community that says that it's not an esrog. How do they know? It doesn't say anywhere esrog. It doesn't say anywhere esrog. So that's another element, is that, first of all, it's an impractical method. Of, if, you thought, if you believe that God gave us the Torah... Right? You also believe that God gave us the Torah with the in- intention that we should understand what it is. And thus, we know the written Torah is impossible to, send, to understand the intention of the written Torah without some additional information. And by the way, what's super clear is that historically, we don't find any disagreement about the basic ideas of any, any law that does not appear in the written Torah. And that's remarkable. Oh, Tzitzis. Another great example. Tzitzis. All Tzitzis look the same. You know? So the blue is not. That's a separate discussion. But ha- they're all the same, right? Um, and what's funny, what's ironic about this is that every group that has questioned 
the oral Torah had to make up their own oral Torah. This is what's very funny about it. Because you say, uh, the Tzidokin, they say, we don't like your oral Torah. We're going to go with just the written Torah. You go with just the written Torah? Okay, how far, does that, how far do you get with that? Not very far at all. Because you have to right away create your own oral Torah because that's the only way it's possible to study the written Torah with the intention of fulfilling it is if you have some way of understanding what these verses all mean. And the only question is, which oral Torah are you going to follow? Are you going to follow the oral Torah that has been part and parcel of the Jewish people for thousands of years? Or you make up your own. That's the only question. But make up your own. Make up your own. So decide what tefillin looks like without trying to find what the rest of the Jewish communities throughout the world have found. You know they found tefillin in the caves of Qumran and Masada from the, uh, from the people that were there, from the Essenes, from the, from the um, soldiers of Bar Kochba, Bar Kaziva. They found tefillin, right? Existing tefillin. And they took it and compared it to our tefillin. They were the same. Same four compartments on the head, same one compartment on the arm, same one stroll on the arm, same four different strolls, what the strolls are. Pretty remarkable. It's same actually found... Color. Huh? Same color. Well, same color, of okay. course. Same boxes. Everything's the same. You could have took them if they weren't worn out and worn them right now. Just incredible. And ha- you know, we see just ubiquity of agreement what the species are on, on Sukkot, what, Sukkot, what a Sukkot looks like. And that, I think, alone is a very powerful argument that the fact that, A, it's not possible to have a written Torah uh, uh, be fulfilled without an oral Torah. It's not possible. B, we see historically every Jewish community is in agreement about uh, you know, a million and a half things about what the, and what the oral Torah says. And of course, the to- written Torah itself testifies to the existence of an oral Torah. So, in conclusion, today we have a little bit, we're, we're starting the first topic, we're gonna, we're the, the first uh, on this topic, we're going to continue in next session. Um, what is oral Torah? What is it comprised of? How it relates to the written Torah? What are the parts of the oral Torah that are not included in the written Torah? And some evidence to its existence. There is more. I just picked select uh, pieces of evidence. Uh, next time, we're going to talk about why was it not written. What, what is the kind of the inner bolts uh, of how it works? Why was it, why was it not written? Why was it ultimately written? How was it written? What are the methods of, it, of, of how it's, uh, it was written? What are the seven reasons? I actually got seven. Maybe there are more. Actually, I have, I have seven. I really have eight reasons why it wasn't written and why we have to have this system of a written Torah and an oral Torah. And what are the benefits of that? Seven different reasons. We'll go through those next week. And uh, additionally, the question of the uh, the broken telephone question, we'll address that. How is it possible to have it transmitted orally without it being written down uh, for centuries, etc., uh, etc.? Et and I look forward to continuing this next week. Uh, but hopefully we can, and we already have dispelled some of the myths that people have about oral Torah. And hopefully we will continue doing that next time. Thank you all, and thank you for coming. I look forward to seeing you guys next time. All the best.